you were to try and summarize what the Apostle Paul's central and core message of everything he preached and taught, how do you think you'd summarize that? What was at the heart of this message? Really, the heart of the entire New Testament scriptures. Perhaps we could argue the entire Bible. In numerous places, Paul himself gives that very summary when he says, I sought to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. It was the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which was at the core of everything Paul, the New Testament, the Bible, thought was central to the Bible. Thank you. The pollen is everywhere. I'm going to need this. Well, this morning's passage looks at this idea, and we see it in one of the Apostle Paul's very first sermons. If you turn with me to Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, I'll read for us Acts 13, starting in verse 13, all the way through to verse 44. Acts 13, 13 to verse 44. The passage begins on the Sabbath and ends on the next week's Sabbath. Acts 13, 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, that is, Gentiles who wanted to Think about and worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was... Finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them, By condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. 
But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised them from the dead, no more to return to corruption he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this man, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with him, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him now in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us. We pray, Lord, that as we give our hearts and our minds to make sense of what your word has revealed, Father, we pray and ask that you would illuminate and allow us to understand it by your spirit. Father, your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce into the depths of our hearts between bow and marrow, soul and spirit. And Lord, it's able to convict us of sin, and we pray that you do that now. Father, it's also able to encourage us in faith. And so now, by your Spirit, do so. Allowing us to see and grasp the beauty of Christ, and as we see him in his resurrected glory by faith, Father, we pray that you would encourage us for our good and your glory. Amen. What we see in this passage is Paul's explanation of Easter. That's why we're here this morning. This is, again, one of Paul's first sermons. And Easter is at its center. The center is Jesus Christ, his death, and his resurrection, and what that means for us. There are three parts, three main points to what Luke records for us here. First, we see Paul's proclamation. He proclaims the gospel. Second, we see Paul's application of the gospel. And then thirdly, we see the audience's reaction to the gospel. Paul's proclamation, his application and then the audience's reaction. Now, at the beginning, in verses 13 through 16, we see Paul embarking on this missionary journey, and apparently Paul and his companions arrived at this kind of backwater city of Antioch and Pisidia. As was Paul's habit, he went into the local synagogue on the Sabbath day, and, and after a reading of the scriptures, one from the law section of the Old Testament, and then another reading from the prophets section of the Old Testament, the elders in that synagogue turned to Paul and asked him if he would give a word of exhortation out of those readings. Could you preach it, exposit it for us? It wasn't inco- uncommon in those days for a visiting rabbi to kind of do this extemporaneous sermon out of the scripture reading. 
And perhaps Paul still was dressing like a rabbi. He had been trained in the rabbinic tradition, so he looked as if he could do it, and they called on him to do that. And so we see in verse 16 that Paul stood up. He's a good speaker. He motions with his hands, and he gives an exhortation. He gives a proclamation of the gospel. And the first thing you'll notice is that Paul starts with a kind of summary account of all the Old Testament. Do you see that there? The Old Testament was just read in the synagogue, so it makes sense that Paul would do this to kind of all together. But, but he mentions there in verse 17 how it was that God chose the people of Israel to be his people and he to be their God. Paul's referring, of course, to the patriarchal period of Israel's history, what we see there in the beginning of Genesis, where God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then look there in verse 17 again. He mentions that God made them great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And now, with with uplifted arms, God led the people of Israel out. Here he's referring to and summarizing the book of Exodus. Verse 18, we see Paul summarize the years of Israel's wandering throughout the wilderness, which is depicted in the book of Numbers. And here Paul says God carried them for about 40 years. Then verse 19, the history of Israel's conquest in the land of Canaan, recorded for us back in the book of Joshua. Paul says, after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. Then verse 20, Paul summarizes all the history of God's people seen in the book of Judges, and First and Second Samuel, even a little bit of First Kings, when he says that after this, God gave the people judges until Samuel the prophet. Then finally, in verses 21 through 22, We see the beginning of Israel's great monarchy with the instituting of King Saul and then the great hero, King David. But there's a reason Paul starts this way. He's not just kind of showing off his ability to say, look how I can summarize the whole Old Testament in a minute or two. No, he wants to make a point. First, did you notice who the main subject is in each verse? Who's the main actor? It's God. God chose Israel to be his people. They didn't choose God. God made the people to be great in in, in Egypt. God rescued them out of slavery. God preserved them through the wilderness. It was God who conquered the nations in Canaan, and then God gave the land to Israel. God brought in the prophets, and it was God who instituted the kings. That's very clear in this first part of Paul's summary. And the point Paul wants to highlight here is that the entire Old Testament is centered on the person and work of God. It's his story, a history of his sovereign grace. Oftentimes, preachers love to look at the events uh, and the stories in the Old Testament and preach these really encouraging sermons for their people based on and, and focused on the human characters, right? How can you have strength and courage like David to fight the Goliaths in your life? Here are five ways to lead your family faithfully like the great faithful Joshua. But notice where Paul puts the emphasis. When he reads the Old Testament, he sees God as the main actor. It's God who's doing all the work and it's God who's making his people to flourish and prosper. What this does is it it takes the spotlight off of us and and it puts the spotlight where it belongs on him. And now we're able, we're in a position to do what God truly desires of us to do. Simply rely on him in faith and worship him for every good thing that he does for us. That's what Paul's pointing out here. It's all about God. But the second reason, perhaps the greater reason, 
Paul wants to summarize all the Old Testament this way is because he wants to show how the whole message of the Bible, how the whole Old Testament really finds its fulfillment and climax in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the climax of biblical history. The people Paul is preaching to here, these Jewish worshipers, they knew their Old Testament. They didn't need a refresher in Old Testament history. But Paul's showing them that it was all inspired. It was was all written down and fits together in order to point forward to the person of Jesus Christ. He, who's the promised Old Testament Messiah. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel was regarded and was often called God's son. They were a people enslaved, as though dead in Egypt. And God brought them out of darkness, out of Egypt, through the judgment of death that fell there on all the firstborn sons. And then Israel, who God calls his firstborn son, was brought through death, underneath the sacrifice of a slaughtered lamb, and out into freedom, into new life. All of that, says Paul, is pointing to Jesus Christ, who is the true son of God. This is why when Paul gets to David... He can jump from King David, a a man after God's own heart, a man who did all that pleased the Lord, and go straight to the true king, the king of kings, the truly obedient one, the greater son of David, Jesus Christ. Every event, every character, every story has in some way a direct line pointing and connecting to Jesus Christ. Do you see there in verse 32? This is exactly why Paul says that he can bring the good news, the gospel, which God promised beforehand to the fathers. That is, the promises contained in all the Old Testament have now been fulfilled and seen to be fulfilled in the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so you can see there that that he quotes in his sermon these different uh, Old Testament passages, and and he ties them to their ultimate fulfilled meaning in Christ. Look there in verse 33. He quotes from Psalm 2, where we see God promise first to Israel, you are my son, today I have begotten you. But which Paul says is really pointing to Jesus, the eternally begotten son, the true and greater Israel. Look there in verse 34. We see Paul quote from Isaiah 53, which recounts God's promise to the people of Israel, an eternal covenant of grace. But what Paul says here applies more fully to Jesus, seeing Jesus as the true and final fulfillment, the enactor of of an eternal covenant of grace. And again, verse 35, Paul quotes from Psalm 16, which we had read for us earlier, a psalm which seems to, in its reference, be a promise originally given to David, that God would not let David taste corruption in death. But then look how Paul argues. And he argues here that since David did see corruption in death, does that then make God a liar? Is God unfaithful in that promise that he made? No, says Paul. The faithfulness of God's promise is seen and it's being fulfilled in the greater David, or the great, great, great descendant and grandson of David, Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who was resurrected from the dead and did not experience any corruption while in the grave. And this issue of fulfillment, that Jesus is not only the central point and the the climax of Old Testament history, also seems to be what Paul is saying here. He's the central unifying person to all human history. Four times Paul talks about God fulfilling or carrying out what he had planned, what God had planned to take place. Look there in verse 23. He says Jesus was brought to be a savior just as God had promised. Verse 27, 
Paul says that the condemnation of Jesus was a fulfillment of God's promises. Look there in verse 29. Paul says the Pharisees carried out everything they did against Jesus because it was already written about Jesus to happen. Verse 33. Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus was the fulfillment of an earlier promised salvation. For Paul, Jesus' death and resurrection is the fulfillment of all that God has written. All history is playing out exactly as God has designed it. And for Paul, the purpose and meaning behind all history finds its answer in Christ. The death and resurrection of Jesus giving meaning to history. And it's good to be reminded that that's what today marks. Easter is that for us. But of course, the question arises as to why. What does that mean for Paul and for us? Why does Jesus' fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and all of history really matter? And I think what Paul is saying is that because Jesus died and rose again, we see in that event that Jesus really is the Son of God in whom any hope can be found. Because Jesus died and rose again, we see in that historical event, in the death and resurrection of Christ, that Jesus really is the Son of God. And if that's true then it's only in him that any hope can be found. Look there in verse 26. Paul says, brothers, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. This truth of Jesus fulfilling all that God has promised, there's a message in it, and it's this. Jesus is our salvation. Look how Paul underlines this point. He says first in verses 27 through 29, that in the most ironic of fashions, when Jesus came to the people of Israel... The very people of God uh, that God gave promises to, the very people who, who should have known these, these Old Testament promises of a coming Messiah, well, the very people who were tasked with looking for him, what was their response? Answer verse 27, they didn't recognize him. Neither did they understand all the things he taught and said about himself. There was a spiritual blindness, a spiritual deafness in how they received Jesus Moreover, in fulfillment of God's sovereign plan, and to fulfill God's promises of a, of a forsaken and condemned Messiah, Paul recounts at the end of verse 27 that the Israelites did what else? They condemned him. Though they found no guilt in him, verse 28, they still gave him over to be executed. And then, verse 29, after they killed him, they buried him. Here's the irony in it all. An irony I think, I, I think Paul wants to emphasize If the question for Paul's audience is how can we be sure Jesus really is the Messiah? If all hope is to be found in him, how do we know that's the guy? Paul's answer begins here with the very irony that Jesus was put to death precisely because the Pharisees and the Jews in Jerusalem judged Jesus to be an imposter. They knew that he called himself to be the son of God and they hated it. They knew that he claimed to be the only one who could forgive sins and they hated that. They knew that Jesus claimed to be able to give eternal life to anyone who believed. And they said, blasphemy. And what was their verdict? He's lying. This is an imposter. This man, Jesus, is the very opposite of what he's claiming to be. Crucify him. And to Paul's synagogue audience, they too perhaps were tempted to think that Jesus couldn't have been the Messiah. Really? Were the great religious teachers in Jerusalem wrong? The men who gave their lives to studying the Old Testament wrong about the Messiah? 
They knew where God himself had said that he curses anyone who hangs and dies on a tree. Could that man who died upon a cross, someone who's cursed by God, be the blessed Messiah? Indeed, the scandalous death of Jesus of Nazareth, as he, as he hung there naked, cursed upon the cross, that must have been proof positive that he was not the blessed Messiah. This man was cursed of God. And yet that's the deeper irony. Paul knew that in their rejection of him, in the murder of the Son of God as Jesus hung upon the cross cursed, God was also fulfilling all that was written and promised about the Messiah and how our salvation would come through that curse, through his death and burial. The judgment of men upon the blessed Son of God would be the very means by which the judgment of God was taken off of a cursed humanity. Which is why verse 30 begins with those triumphant and glorious words, but God. Jesus' death was the judgment and verdict of fallen men who didn't believe in him. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem and who are now witnessing to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, namely our salvation from sin, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus from the dead. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that God's judgment of Jesus Christ, God's ultimate verdict on who Jesus claimed to be was of a very different nature. Was Jesus the Messiah? Was he the true son of God? Could Jesus forgive sin and give eternal life? God's answer was a resounding, resurrected, yes. God raised him from the dead. The resurrection is God's proof positive that Jesus is the truth. The way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. The resurrection is God's judgment that everyone who rejected Jesus, they were wrong. The resurrection is the vindication of everything Jesus claimed. And in verse 32, Paul tells us that the resurrection is the good news of God's promised salvation. This is what Easter is, friends. The resurrection, declaring for everyone, even here, even right now, that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul's proclamation is that Jesus is Savior. But Paul isn't content to just leave his sermon there, so neither can we be. I mean, he not only gives the proclamation of the gospel, but secondly, he also gives the application. You see this turn towards application in verse 38, where the apostle uses the word therefore. You always want to ask, what's the therefore? Therefore. And he wants to apply the truths of Christ's resurrection and see, therefore, what that truth means for us. In other words, so what, Paul? Who cares if Jesus died and then three days later was raised back to life, never to die again? Why, at the end of the day, does that really mean anything for me? And the answer, the application Paul gives is profound. And remember, this message is the message of the resurrection. And he calls this the message of salvation. And so he applies this truth immediately in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That's his first point of application. That it is only in and through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that anybody can receive the forgiveness of sins. Perhaps we've forgotten that that reality is really our greatest need. The forgiveness of sins 
It's a scary thought that so many of us are quite willing to admit, yep, that we sin. We might even be willing to admit that, yes, I am a sinner. But I all too often fear that many of us have forgotten and no longer feel the weight of how much God really is opposed to sin and opposed to us as sinners. We tend to cultivate that little lie that in the end, God really is okay with us. That at the end of the day, God isn't too concerned with my little sins. But we've forgotten that God despises sin. So much so that he's, well, he's wiped out entire cities because of sin. You can think of Sodom and Gomorrah. We've forgotten that God has sent an entire worldwide flood because of sin. Indeed, perhaps we've forgotten that God hates sin so much that he sent his only begotten son to die upon the cross in order to deal with sin. At the end of the day, friends, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ won't mean much to you until you begin to feel, and and not just know, but I mean really feel the weight of how despicable and offensive and sinful your sin really is in the sight of God. This is why Paul says in verse 39 that without Christ, no one can be freed from the law of Moses. What does he mean here? Well, he means that until we feel and take hold of the truth that God is really against me because of my sin, as the Bible calls us enemies of God outside of Christ, then I will still cling to that lie that there's something I can do to stand rightly before God. I still think I can try a little harder and, and work a little more to obey the law of God. Maybe if I start going to church a little bit more, I'll even go to Bible study on Thursday night. God will like that. Do I sin? Sure. Everyone does. But all I need to do is make sure I keep on doing the good things God wants me to do. And I'm sure at the end of the day, God will be so impressed with all those good little things that all those little sins won't even matter. Under the rug, right? Paul says, no. Don't you realize what the resurrection does to all your efforts? Don't you realize what the resurrection of Christ does to all your good works and all your ability to try and obey God's law? They become nothing. They become worse than nothing. They're an offense to God. Now, God's son has died and taken the punishment you deserved. And because he's been raised to life in vindication for what he's done, all your so-called ability to obey the law is seen for what it really is. Self-interested, prideful disobedience. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, said that once he came to see the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection on his behalf, he counted all his righteous works as trash, as garbage. Think of it. At the end of the day, when you stand before God and God says to you, why should I let you into my presence? You who've sinned from the time you were a child. You who have sinned every thought, word, and deed until the day you've died. Why should I let you into my holy presence? And then you give the answer. God, look at all the good things I've done. I went to church for you. I helped others for you. I gave money for you. I've done all these good things for you. Look at all the effort I put forward in trying to live a good life. Doesn't that count for something, God? And God's only response has to be, if it was all up to you, then why did I send my son Jesus to die for you? Don't you see? The resurrection is God's declaration that salvation comes only in and through Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in verse 38 that it's only through him, only through Jesus, that there's forgiveness of sins. 
Our greatest need was met in him. He's the answer. He's the point of it all. All the Bible points to him and all our worship is centered in him because Jesus Christ is our salvation. So often we tend to think that the gospel is Jesus changed my life, right? And when people ask us, why are we Christians? We often say, well, because Jesus changed my life. And of course, yes, he does do that. But only as a secondary side effect. But for Paul... And according to all the New Testament, the gospel isn't Jesus changed my life. The gospel is Jesus. It's about him because the good news is him. Which leads to the second point of application that Paul gives, which is this. If our forgiveness is found in the person of Jesus, if our righteousness before God is found in him, it's Jesus' righteousness on my behalf, then the question is, the essential question is, how do I get in Jesus. How do I become the beneficiary of all that is in and encapsulated in the incarnate Son of God? And the simple answer is found in verse 38. Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. In other words, do you believe this message? And do you believe in Jesus Christ? What he's done and what he means for you? That's it. Faith. Faith alone, confidently trusting that Jesus Christ died for your sins and was resurrected from the grave to give you new life. That's why the picture of baptism, which we celebrated earlier, is so appropriate. This outward display of what's happened to someone who has believed in Jesus. They've died with him. No longer guilty for their sin because Jesus died to take the punishment. And now by faith in him, it's as if they took that punishment too. And in baptism, we see the picture of them being raised to new life. Because by believing in Jesus, his resurrection is our resurrection. We're given new spiritual life in our inner hearts. The water, a picture of the spirit of Christ washing away all sin and guilt. So this is why Paul preaches in this synagogue that he's visiting, that in order to benefit from the resurrection of Jesus, all you have to do is believe. And friends, that's the same truth applied to us this morning. There is no forgiveness of sins unless you turn from your sin. You turn from trusting in your own ability to please God, and instead you turn to Jesus Christ and believe in him alone. Notice how Paul gives the opposite side of the coin in verses 40 and 41. See there his warning? He says, beware. Beware, therefore, lest what is said of the prophets should come about for you. And then he quotes from Habakkuk 1, which says, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. What's he saying here? He's saying that there are people who, when the message of the gospel comes to them, rather than receiving that message with humble faith, well, they instead scoff at it. Or maybe they're just indifferent to it. Or maybe they're just distracted by something else. But in the end, they reject the truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus as something that's inconsequential or silly or nonsense. God has done something astounding, a work of redemption and salvation that you wouldn't believe even if I told you. And the sad irony is that just like the Pharisees who rejected Jesus when he came, well, so too there are people throughout history, even today, who continue to reject Jesus in the rejection of the gospel message. Friends, don't miss the seriousness of this point. 
Paul is speaking here to people who knew their Bibles well. They were in the synagogue on the Sabbath. They were a a church-going people. And yet Paul knew that many of them very well, because of their hardness of heart, would reject what he was saying. Perhaps you've come here this morning, someone quite familiar with church. You've always gone to church on Easter. You've grown up hearing about and knowing the Bible. And what Paul is giving here is a a warning of utmost seriousness. You can be here and you, you can see the baptism which projects a picture of the gospel. You can hear the very message of Jesus Christ. And and you can even maybe intellectually get these things. But at the end of it all, walk out of here unchanged, not believing, still unforgiven, not trusting in Christ, and still in your sins. Friends, if that's you this morning, I beg of you, take heed of Paul's counsel here. I've been praying for you all week. Beware lest what is said in the Old Testament prophets concerning the rejection of Jesus by the Pharisees also turns out to be true of you. Jesus Christ, the Son of God who became a man, died for your sins and was resurrected to give you new life, and he stands now alive at the right hand of the Father. His resurrection vindicates the reality of who he is and what he came to do, to take away your sins. Will you believe in him this morning? Will this Easter, 2018, mark the beginning of your new resurrected life in Jesus Christ? I pray it does. Finally, as we come to a close, what was the reaction to Paul's sermon? Look there in verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And this morning, gladly, I see many new faces, visitors to Greenbelt Baptist Church, many whom I've not met yet. Perhaps you've heard something new this morning. A gospel message that has resonated with you and is something that you'd like to hear more about. Not only would I love to meet you after the service and talk with you about these truths, but I pray too that this Sunday may not be your first and last visit to a church. Return again. Verse 44 says that the next Sabbath day almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Our primary commitment at this church is to expound and center our lives together on the word of God. And my invitation to you, my my challenge to you, is to come back and gather with us again to simply hear that word. This is the evidence of the spirit of Christ working new resurrection life in those people who really do believe in Jesus. As you begin to believe in him and trust in him, you find that you begin to hunger and thirst more for his word. You develop a taste for his word, which is contained here in the scriptures, the Bible. And if you want to know more about this Jesus, well, then I commend you to keep coming to hear from his word as you begin to submit to him in all the things that he says. On the night before Jesus died, he commanded his disciples to commemorate his death and resurrection in and through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Like baptism, which is an ordinance that showcases a person's entrance into Christ and into his church, the body of Christ, so too is the Lord's Supper an ordinance which highlights our ongoing communion with Christ and our continued fellowship together as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. It's our duty 
then as believers gather together in a local church to partake together of this supper. The bread represents the broken body of Jesus as he lied dying upon the cross. And the cup represents his shed blood on our behalf. As we partake together of these elements, the Bible says that though we feed on the bread and wine physically, we become spiritually nourished in Jesus through faith. And we don't believe that the bread and the cup actually become the body and blood of Christ, but only that they are signs signifying or pointing to the spiritual reality that's already been partaken of in Christ. Just as Paul said that by believing in Jesus, we therefore become found in Jesus. So at the Lord's Supper, we see that as we eat and drink of the bread and the cup, and the elements become one with us, by faith in Jesus, we are one with him. We invite anyone here who has believed in Jesus, has been baptized and is a part of a gospel-believing church to enjoy with us this morning the blessing of the Lord's Supper and to partake of it in worship with us. Now, if you're not a believer, we do ask that you allow these elements to pass. They have no bearing on your life. This practice is a gospel presentation of a believer's fellowship with Jesus and our unity one with another. But if you've heard the gospel here this morning and you think, you know what? I like that. And and I do believe that. I I, want to be found in Jesus. Well, then again, please come talk with me or one of the elders or really any member in this church after the service. And we'd love to walk you through what it means to be an obedient follower of Jesus, uh, becoming baptized and then obeying and enjoying all that he's commanded, like taking the Lord's Supper. At this time, I'd like to invite the deacons to come up and help distribute the bread. As it comes to you, uh, it's our practice here at church, at least for the bread, to eat it individually as we confess our individual faith and salvation in Christ. Uh, When the cup comes, hold on to the cup and we'll partake of it together. Before the deacons hand out the bread, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning, for the glorious truth, the historical truth, the reality that our Savior Jesus Christ, though dead, has been risen to new life and is now alive. Father, all other leaders and religious figures have died and remain dead. Father, our Savior is alive. And it is in his name that we worship you now. Father, forgive us for the sins that we've committed, but thank you that in Christ they are forgiven, washed away, and that now we can boldly approach your throne of grace as we worship you, partaking of the Lord's Supper. Guide us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.